Episode three, and we are down one of our normal politics trio, but we have a world-class substitute in today for that. We are talking through a lot of stuff. Elections over for city council, dysfunction on that same council, then over to the state house to talk about gun reform and the migrant shelter crisis here in Massachusetts. I'm Matt. I'm Sue. I'm Jax. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment. And this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. All right. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in, listening wherever, whenever you are. To my left here is Sue O'Connell. She's political correspondent, commentator over here at NBC10 Boston. And over here, another podcaster as well, uh, Politics and Prosecco host, Jaquetta Van Zandt. Jaquetta, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here with both of you. Back yes. in the green room again. Yes, my favorite place. No kidding. You've been on the show itself a couple of times. Yes, that I have. issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And today I'm filling in for Corey. I know, which you're very happy about, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Happy to be in for Corey. Yes. We've got a lot to talk about here in the city of Boston. We've got city council elections coming up in three weeks or so. Right now, a lot of people are talking about the dysfunction on this council and inability to get things done and inability to have great conversation. I guess, Jaquetta, what do you think is behind that? I think with the with the primaries that we just had, with uh, us losing a big uh, chunk of a lot of the dysfunction being Ricardo and Kendra, it's going to be a game changer. What we're going to see now is a lot of the other city councilors being able to step to the front to be able to speak their mind, have their own vision and voice come to fruition. And I'm excited about that because there's so many smart people on that council. So one of the things that the city council over decades has been criticized about is when they stray from their mission of doing constituent services, the city of Boston issues, and they open their ideas to what's happening in the world. Now, obviously, people care a lot about what's happening in the Middle East with the Israeli-Hamas war, but there was a little dust-up this week at the city council. What happened there, and do you think that's really within their realm of things to be talking about? I really don't think it's within their realm of things to be talking about. You know, look, I... I'm not going to say people shouldn't opine or they shouldn't, you know, have their own heartfelt messages, but um, this is an issue that is bigger than the city of Boston, and we need to be mindful of the humanity around this. You know, we had a six-year-old boy in Chicago killed, and, and that is unfair. And I think instead of talking about the politics of it, bring about the humanity of it and talk about this is not okay for civilians, innocent people to be killed, no matter what your political views are. I mean, Sue, do you feel like this is a situation where Boston city councilors, I mean, should they just be focusing on their constituents, the services that they're providing, or is there a place, I guess, to have conversation and dialogue about other issues? Sure. I mean, to to Jack's point, I think that it's important to recognize and show solidarity with things that are happening beyond the the confines of Boston. But at the same time, um, you know, there are issues in the city of Boston, both serious and Um, not life-threatening but still serious that I don't think a lot of the counselors are paying attention to. The rat problem, Mm -hmm. right, is a major problem. It's a health-threatening issue. Um, We're not paying attention to that at the city council. Like the constituent services, we have elected officials. We have congresspeople. We have senators. We have people in Washington who are addressing these world, I mean, Washington may not be the best example right now. As, as we're taping this, we still don't have a Speaker of the House. But still, those are, that's what their job is, right? I want to know why, why we don't have a rule yet that you can't put your trash out in plastic bags, that it has to be in a barrel. 
I know that's not the same, obviously, as the horror that's happening in the Middle East, but that's what my city councilor is for. That's why I have a city councilor. I have a homeless kid that's living on my street in a car, and I have called councilors as a constituent. I've sent emails as a constituent saying, you know, this kid looks like a young kid living in his car. Is there something we can do to bring services to this kid? But that is no one's called me back. That is what the city council does well. They deflect, deflect, deflect. So it's easier to talk about uh, the Middle East crisis instead of, you know, effectively saying, you know, I know that in Roxbury, you know, we need to have street sweepers almost on an every other day basis because the rat problem is so big along the, especially along um, the, the train tracks and, and places like that. So it's easier to deflect. That is what the city council has been doing so well. And it's also why a lot of voters are losing trust and losing interest, quite frankly, in the entire voting process, specifically with this body of city council. Yeah, you guys have both brought up some, I mean, Jaquetta, is there specific issues right now that you see in the city that the city council is neglecting? So I live in District 7. I live in Roxbury. I live in the heart of Roxbury. I live not very far from Nubian Square, and I have to put my barrels of trash out the morning of because I'm so afraid if I put them out the night before, raccoons and rats are going to, and I don't want them anywhere near my house. So it's, it's issues like that. We have a transportation issue in the city. We have issues in Roxbury that not only mass and cast, which I I also don't live very far from that's a big issue and the city should be working with the state to do that and they're not doing it they're easy it's easier for them to deflect and not have to actually do their job and the accountability is huge for me and I'm not finding it with the city council well September's preliminary election showed us the change will be coming as we get closer and closer to election day on November 7th one race in particular district 5 Enrique Pepin and Jose Ruiz uh, battling it out to take over for Arroyo who held that seat the incumbent who got ousted I guess what are you specifically watching for in this race? I'm looking for, back to what I was saying earlier, accountability. What this council needs is accountability for themselves and accountability of their colleagues. A lot of times what we've seen over the last two years is it's been one voice of, you know, one speaker saying things for the entire city council and, and it's not necessarily what other residents are thinking or how they feel. I think what I'm looking for is both in, in this district race and, and in district, um, I believe it's six with, with Kendra, is that we're going to have a powerful leader who is going to speak their mind but also have some accountability. Were you surprised that both, uh, there, there were two incumbents? I went on vacation the week of the preliminary <laughs> yeah, right. election because I thought, you know, it would be unheard of for any incumbent I mean, it had been 40 years since an incumbent city councilor didn't make it past the prelimin. Were you surprised that both Kendra, uh, Lara, and um, um, uh, Arroyo didn't make it through? No, I'm not. Um, what they did was, in, in my opinion, the problem was, you know, look, we're, we're a country of forgiving. We love a good second act. What we don't love is when you don't humble yourselves and say, you know, maybe these things didn't go the way I thought they would. They doubled down. They became arrogant and defiant, and voters don't like that. And also, you know, to your point about it's been 40 years, think about the generations that have happened within that 40 years. So 40 years ago was, what, 1983 or something like that? Oh, my God. Um, so generations have happened. You've got millennials and you've got Gen Z, and both of those generations no longer care about loyalty to a certain person. They want you to align with their values, and I think that that's what we're seeing. It was young people that kind of ousted them. Young progressives were not here for any of their shenanigans, and so that's you know, in the words of our great minister of music, Curtis Blow, those are the breaks. <laughs> break it up, break it up, yeah. break it up, break those down. Are the breaks. <laughs> so that's where we are. So I was not surprised. And, and as a, in fact, you know, I said this to a reporter that I knew that, that it was coming. That was going to happen.
Well, Juquetta, I know you talk with a lot of these candidates as well. In that preliminary election, Enrique Pepin had 40% of the vote, mm -hmm. Jose Ruiz right about at 30%. Do you think Ruiz can, can uh, take that gap, I guess, in the next two or three weeks? What he has to do is outpace Enrique at this point. Enrique is knocking doors every day, twice a day. I heard that Ruiz is only doing it once a day and it's only every other day. So he's got to outpace him at this point. Other than that, you know, you're not going to get that groundswell that you have. And also what Enrique is doing is he's reaching out to new voters. What a lot of people in, in Massachusetts and Boston do is they have a base and they rely on their base and that's fine. They're not reaching out to new voters. Enrique is reaching out to new voters, people who just moved to the city. He's identifying those people, engaging with them. That is what he's doing so much better. It's what he did better than Ricardo and what he's doing better than Ruiz. Well, and Sue, I wanted to ask you too with this race, these are two Hispanic Latino mm -hmm. gentlemen that'll be taking uh, the reins of District 5 after this. How important is it, I guess, to have that sort of representation on stuff? Oh, shows? yeah, it's, it's absolutely huge. Um, you know, the way we were talking before the show started trying to remember which districts represent which neighborhoods, and because it's a population based district, not a neighborhood based mm -hmm. district, the, the, the neighborhoods get split up sometimes, but that's definitely an area where you have a strong Hispanic Latino representation living there. So it's important that you have those voices on the council as well. I also wanna ask you, Jax, about Mayor Wu and also Mayor Walsh, former Mayor Walsh's efforts in this election for city council. Um, the late mayor, Tom Menino, had a big, big, thumb that he would put on the scale for a lot of folks who were running both from fundraising, also volunteers that get out to get the door knocking and to get the, uh, the, the signatures to run. Um, it looks like Michelle Wu has an opportunity here to really put the council together with people who are aligned with her viewpoint. Do you agree with that? I absolutely do. And what I, what I see her doing is, because in the beginning when she first got there, she thought she already had that machine in place and it didn't work for her. Every candidate she touched, it was like they lost. And so now she's building upon what I think has worked well for Marty Walsh and Menino. They were people kind of mayors. They understood the, the relationships of people. They understood the power of relationships and politics. I don't think she got that until this year. And so for that, she's now starting to branch out. She's being a little bit more open, welcoming, and warm. And that is what is drawing more voters to her. And I think that's to her advantage. I'm proud of her for that because it, we haven't seen it. And it's almost like sometimes in politics, you have to click for you to get it. It's not instantaneous for people. It wasn't instantaneous for her. She saw what, that, what the consequences were of that. And so that's where we are right now. She's doing a great job, though, of opening up those doors and, and having her staff be more accountable for that. And so that's where we are. So let's move one district over now. You sort of jumped the gun. We talked about it a little <laughs> bit, District 6, with Kendra Lara being ousted there. This is between Benjamin Weber and William King, even a closer race, 42% to 37%. Yeah. What sort of dynamics do you see at play here? And, and, and how does William King, I guess, um, get the gap because I think he, he had some critical endorsements coming through mm -hmm. in the last few days yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. He had, he, it's a very heavily progressive district yeah. and it's a young district because it's so transient. You know, a lot of people move in and move out of there. I think what William King needs to do is start doing what Enrique is doing, which is identifying new voters. That progressive base shifts almost every other year. If you watch a pattern, you have new people that come in, but their progressive ideas are different from the generation before. So, for instance, you know, you thought it was progressive if you grew your own food back in 1987. And now, chicken. <laughs> right. Now, it's, it's not only the thing to do, but it's the chic thing to do. So, when, when you start to see these patterns, 
patterns, you'd have to know that the voting is going to change too. And it's a younger base, which means many of them are renters. So they want to know about housing stabilization. They want to know about how to retain talent here. That's what you have to talk about, those issues that mean something to that specific um, area. It's not like a Mattapan where you have a lot of homeowners who care more about, you know, the, the way their neighborhood looks or transportation. He's got to, William King has got to start thinking about, like, what do these people want to talk about? And it can't be the same thing that Kendra talked about when she ran. What do you think the voter turnout situation is going to be? Because the prelim, I mean, obviously there's no mayor, there's no big race pushing it, but... Um, it doesn't take most, I mean, kind of looking at uh, uh, Tanya uh, Fernandez-Anderson, Anderson Fernandez um, district, our district, with Althea Garrison, a longtime candidate, uh, with a low turnout, anything could happen there. Well, it's, it's funny because District 7 is historically the lowest voter turnout in the Commonwealth. This is not just a city thing. It is the lowest voter turnout in the Commonwealth. And that has to do with disenfranchisement. A lot of it has to do with housing instability, food insecurity, all of that. What... Tanya needs to worry about is Althea has a base. She's been elected twice. Mm -hmm. and, and she's been running for 20 she's years. Been run, she's a habitual runner. And, and listen, we, we love to see it. Sure. Um, but she's she can't rest on the fact that her small base of people that continuously vote for her, meaning Tanya, are going to turn out. You've got to engage new people. And Althea is what she's so good at is she relies on her base, but she turns them out. It's one thing to register voters. It's a whole other thing to mobilize them to come to the voting booth. So I think Tanya should be very um, cautious not to rely on just her base of people and know that Althea is a threat. Yeah, I personally have never met Althea, but Sue told me all I had to do was go to a coffee shop oh, yeah. and she would be sitting there waiting yes. to chat. Yes, yes. Anytime. Yeah. But you know what Althea is going to face is it's a changing world for her, too. She's she's a boomer. And so the world is so different for boomers right now. They feel often lost. And so talking about issues that matter now, especially issues that are um, uncomfortable, she's going to have to actually stick to her guns and either speak on it or don't run again. Talk a little bit about your conversation with Kendra Lara just real quick. We're going sort of back in time. Yeah. You spoke mm -hmm. with her right before the election, I guess. What was your impression of her feelings prior to that, and, and have you spoken to her since? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think Councillor uh, Lara um, is probably in the right on a number of things regarding the crash, mm -hmm. uh, but I think in the end, the fact that she was driving without a license uh, whether it was just that one time or any number of times over 10 years, I, I don't know that she communicated. I don't know how she felt, but I don't know if she communicated that she wished she hadn't done it. Mm. Um, I think that there was an avenue for her, no pun intended, an avenue for her where she could have talked about the, 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 the challenges. I mean, she did, but the challenges of dealing with the RMV, you know, dealing with an out-of-state ticket, which is a pain in the neck for anybody. Yes dealing with the challenges of having a child that can't get on public transportation and making it a call to action, you know? But at the same time, I understand that there's probably a reluctance to make it seem like you're the victim in this, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know um, what she could have done differently about it, um, but I, I think, you know, she'll have her day in court and I think that in the end, um, it's gonna come down to just the driving without a license. I'm not a lawyer, but Today. Um, today. Right, yeah. Could be tomorrow. Um, so I, I think uh, it, it was just, it was shocking to me, though, that she didn't make it through. You're absolutely right, Sue. It was, it was her doubling down and the defiance of it. Because we've all, I mean, I know I have been like, oh, I'll pay this parking ticket 
you know, next yeah. week. And then it's 30 days later and you get that big orange envelope and you're like, you know, do not ignore. Yes, yes, so, yes. Th so then, and I'm too, I'm so scary. I'm just like, I'm gonna pay it. They're gonna come get my car. <laughs> like, yeah. So, you know, it's the, she, it could have been a relatable story and she didn't make it right, relatable. Right. She was defiant, she was arrogant. And that is what turned people off because the DMV is a hustle <laughs> essentially. It, and they're, they're going to get what they, what, they think is rightfully theirs. Yeah. But it's also, for me, the timeline. It was 10 years. So this was before she was a city councilor. Mm -hmm. And I would have loved for her to say, I'm a single mom and you know, I had to make a decision between feeding my child and paying this ticket. And I made a decision to feed. Everybody can relate to that. Mm -hmm. What we can't relate to is, well, it's not my problem. I didn't do this. Why were they following me? You know, no one, it, it can't be any of that. And so, and the challenge too, I mean, and this doesn't change, whether it's city council or, you know, I know even though Donald Trump has blown up all the norms, right, and that, you know, any one-tenth of what Donald Trump actually has been convicted of doing would have disqualified anyone from running for city council. Especially a person of color. <laughs> sure. With, without yeah. a doubt. Yeah. So right. I say that acknowledging it, but any number of city council candidates have told me, you got to have your dog licensed, because it's you're living in your neighborhood, right? We yeah. all see each other, right? Yeah. You gotta have your dog license. You gotta have your tickets paid. You gotta have your, your if you own a home, you have to have your taxes up to date mm -hmm. because it's all public record and eventually it's all gonna come out. And people living in the neighborhoods with you want to make sure that you are being held to a higher standard. Yeah, yeah, as they should be, really, right? And you can't as, govern as the law officials. and break it at the yeah. same time. You gotta pick a struggle. Unless yeah. you're Donald Trump. Yeah. Unless you're Donald Trump. Well, right. you but none right. of us are, he's an alien. Yeah, apparently. that's so, right. Okay. Well, we're not gonna go all the way up to the White House. Let's go down the street to the State House now, talk a little bit of state politics. The gun reform bill that has been sort of making its way through, the House passed it overwhelmingly, and now we wait on the Senate, right, Sue? Yeah, yeah. you know, and part of this is so confusing to me, because I, I kind of think there's some dodge going on mm -hmm. with the leaders that I've talked to. I don't know why this isn't a slam dunk. You have a Democratic governor, yeah. a Democratic House, a democratically controlled Senate. Massachusetts prides itself in its gun safety laws. Um, there was an issue here which we'll talk about about whether or not off-duty police officers could carry their, their, their issued weapon and if they needed to get a separate license and they seem to have fixed that hurdle. Why aren't they heralding this? Is it in saying we can come together, get this law passed quickly, and be more Massachusetts? I feel like there's a struggle between the House and the Senate that we're unaware of about why, if we all agree on this, why isn't it just done? I think a lot of it is because at the core of who we are in Massachusetts, we're actually not that liberal. I think a lot of times people hide behind the democratic label or the progressive label, but they, when they go home, they don't believe in those things. And you know, I was I said to you guys earlier, my father's a retired cop, and I grew up with guns in the house. Um, I, I know about gun safety. My father, who's now retired, still carries a gun, but he has a gun license because, in his mind, you know, I've locked up a lot of people, and so I never know if these people are going to come back and you know. And, and you know, I don't want him to worry about those things, but I don't, I don't live his life, so you know, I don't know what's in his brain. So I understand there's, you know, a little bit of a, some confusion or, or some talks that need to be sort of ironed out. But for me, you're right. Like the fact that they can't come together on this sends a signal to me that we're going to see more of this, no matter what the issue is, no matter what the laws. We we talk about this maternal health, um, that you know this this body is just so dysfunctional yeah. <laughs> and, and all things. 
Um, and that's not what we set it up to be. Every now and then someone will suggest that we shouldn't have two houses. Really? You know, that we should just have one house. Like, why does a state the size of Massachusetts, you know, we're not huge. Why do we need a Senate and a House? I know why we have it. That's another podcast. But, sure. you know, do Let's we really, next yeah, we really <laughs> need to kick these issues back and forth. Yeah. You know, what, why is New Hampshire so much better at getting things done and they don't even pay very that's what I heard. When Maybe I, that's the freedom of it. Yeah. I've only been here three months, and someone told me that the New Hampshire legislature shows up, they do their thing, yep. and then and they, they all leave, go home. They, you know? they decided same-sex marriage, I'm Long exaggerating, before. but like in a day, yeah. because they had to get home at five. Yeah. I mean, it was just like... Or to their other yeah. job. Let's wrap yeah. this up, right. basically. Wrap this up. Yeah. 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 Um, it's so scary. It really mm -hmm. is because the, the, the average, you know, I hate to say this. I'm, I'm, uh, people are going to call me ageist on your comments, and I'm sorry to say this, but, but the average age of, of any state legislature and or Congress is, I think, I think they said 60 is the average age. So if you think about that and think about the issues of today, they no longer matter to people who are at a certain age where they can't have children, are already married, bought their house, it's already paid for. Like, these are not issues that they can, that matter to them. One other issue that seems to be just causing a lot of uh, indigestion uh, inside of uh, the state house is the migrant sheltering crisis. We heard Maura Healy talk about how uh, the capacity is almost all the way up at this point. I mean, have you been watching this? And, and, and what do you think, what's the ultimate answer, I guess? We see this almost all the time. We see this every 10 years. I'm reading a book right now on the Gilded Age, and they talked about how police stations would have to house migrants as well because there was no place to put them. We are literally bursting at the seams in this country, and we're throwing up unaffordable housing, and we're not thinking about the lower problems. It's, it's weird to have someone who has five houses and a person in America has one house. That means the person at the top needs to owes the person that, you know, number two, something as well. We're not thinking about poverty on an issue, or not even just poverty, but equality on, on the level that we should be thinking about it. It's supposed to be an even-handed, but we're not doing that. And it's because in, in Massachusetts and in, in America, it's big business to be poor, it's big business to be sick, it's big business to be anything that is um, going to keep the rich richer. And so for me, when the migrant issue keeps coming up, we're not solving it because we don't want to have the real talk that it's about equity on the and starting at that level and that means we have to deal with the equity right now in this country just among Americans. Yeah, it's been interesting being up in New Hampshire and asking all the different presidential candidates about this issue that we're facing in Massachusetts. You know, and oftentimes what they'll sort of come back at is that back in the way back of way backs that Massachusetts didn't have to deal with this so they wouldn't see it as a crisis. But now, because all the migrants are here, they do. I mean, is that a fair characterization? Well, it's just, it's just like what I said. If I don't have to deal with it and, and amongst my own residents right now, outside of just migrants coming in, we have a homelessness issue on, the, on Cape Cod. Cape Cod, where we all vacation during the summer. I know I do. I, I spend at least a month on the vineyard, but there are homeless people on the vineyard as well. And we're spending, you know, thousands of dollars to rent a home. We're not dealing with the issue here. So when we do have migrants coming, it's more of a, well, we have to do something, but we don't know what to do. And we're, not, we're just going to ignore this issue. We're not talking about what the core issue is, and that is equity and housing instability that is already in this state right now and has been here. And I, you know, I think the Massachusetts approach to this is also right in that over the Trump years, we lost a lot of immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. Folks either were unable to come over or decided not to come over because they were worried about coming over mm -hmm. and moving here. And we have a declining birth rate 
in this country. And we have an economy you that we... millennials for that. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> <laughs> we have an economy that we want to grow 2% or 3% if you're a capitalist. And, and we don't have this... We have this aging population and we don't have anybody here to do the work or take the jobs or make the money to buy the things that people who are capitalists think are important. And then meanwhile, we have these people coming over, these migrants coming over who want to be here, mm -hmm. right, who got here. I get judged for this because I'm judging them for being successful in going through the horror to get here, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Something I can't imagine myself doing. I can't imagine, like, any of my friends getting off the couch in order to trek miles and hundreds of miles mm -hmm. through dangerous situations to save their families. And they're here. Mm -hmm. Let's give them jobs. Let's welcome them here. Let's find a, and this of course is a Congress problem, not a Massachusetts sure. problem, but wouldn't it be great if we just had them come in and made them citizens pretty quickly and got them you know, into, into the workforce mm -hmm. and solve the problems that we are gonna see with this aging population? But we can't do that if we don't tackle racism, mm -hmm. sexism, homophobia. All of those things play a part in keeping everyone here and just a few up here. And that's what I think is the issue. Because, Sue, you're absolutely right. Like, I would never even want to do it. Like, I, I'm so lazy. I'm like, I'm not trekking anywhere. Sure. But, but also, Well, you know, like, when you ask somebody, when you ask your spouse if they could pick the kids up from, from daycare, and like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. That's <laughs> yeah. a lot. You know, well, meanwhile, you <laughs> meanwhile, have people trekking 200 <laughs> miles through the most dangerous conditions to try right. and save their family. Right. But, the, right? but the core issue is just what we don't address here in America. We will not address racism. We will not address sexism. We will not um, uh, address homophobia. And, and all of those things play a part in food insecurity, housing instability. It's just what makes the low of the low. And that, that's unfortunate. So until we can address those issues and we can make it right, then we can talk about the migrant issue and where to place them, how to give them jobs, make them citizens right away, because I think absolutely that needs to happen. Like, why are we waiting months and years? And that's crazy. And we always talk about the path to citizenship like there is one. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. There's like, you know, half of our relatives who came here by choice snuck in here. I That's mean, there's, right. you know, That's there's a right. whole, you know, yeah. my, the, my great grandparents, I'm not sure how they got here. I hope no one goes back and looks at my roots because <laughs> there was no path, right? We just got kind of, you're here, you're here. You know, you have kids and you're here. So, uh, and anyone who tells you that you should get in line and go on that path, I've talked to a, a, a lot of immigration attorneys who just say it's just not that simple. So you have people who want to be here. You can vet out the people who shouldn't be here that we don't want here for criminal offenses or they might be terrorists. And then let's just let the rest of them come. Yeah, maybe this is the last question of the podcast, but part of this whole conversation has been whether or not the right to shelter law should still be mm -hmm. in place with everything that we're dealing with. Do you feel like it's something that Massachusetts should still have? I don't know. I'm on the fence because, like I said, I live in an area where housing instability, I'm, I'm considered a gentrifier. Mm -hmm. You know, I bought my house during the pandemic. Um, and it was a brand new build, but I've lived next to a building full of subsidized renters. So I'm considered a gentrifier. So for me, I'm on the fence about it. Like, you know, I live in a very housing unstable, uh, unstable area. Mm -hmm. So okay. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think every state should have the right to shelter. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, the idea of sheltering, I mean, the way it's written, sheltering families in need. And, you know, if this drives us, on the, um, the sorrow and, and agony of the families that are going through this, to understand that we don't have the housing that we need, that uh, places like Milton, places like Newton, 
other places around here who have uh, worked on their, their housing code to make sure that you cannot have multiple family housing that people can afford whenever one of these ranches that was built in the 1950s gets torn down and instead of an affordable house going in you get a mini mansion going in right. that you have to buy for a million dollars or that you have the public housing which pretends to pay attention to seniors right by saying we we need more senior housing but we're going to build all these one bedroom public housing right. which means that if you're a family that needs public housing you know you'll have to go somewhere else to find it these are all the problems that are part that this migrant crisis is making us take a hard look at and i just want to add on to that just really quickly is you know the the other issue for me is what do we do once we give them housing they need jobs mm -hmm. they need schools that are functioning um, and they need a government that functions to make sure that their needs are being met so it's more than just giving them a space to live and you know i i volunteer at a domestic violence shelter and my job is to transition the women out of the shelter into their own homes and even that is you know I'm, I'm constantly asking my friends do you have like chairs you can donate do you have like towels you know linens it, it's it's sad it's sickening almost we could probably go for hours on yes. all of these issues <laughs> so much to talk about but uh, that's all the time we have for Sue O'Connell Jaquetta Van Sant thank you for joining us by the thank way thank you guys for of having course. me yep this is the uh, Taking Issue podcast at issue airs every Sunday at 11:30 right after Meet the Press until next time we'll see you here on the podcast mm -hmm.